hold on kids, we're not doing class today. So normally in our service, this is when we would dismiss some of our older children, ages four through about eight years old to our upstairs classroom. But it was just, this passage just has so much to do with our children and with our parenting that, I, that I've actually asked for our classroom to be, uh, to be closed today. So, so kids, you're going to hang out with us today. Parents, it's going to be okay. Uh, let me just... Let me just up front with you, wiggles, squirms, you know, mild screaming doesn't affect me at all. So, you know, the heightened screaming, that, that might require some lobby, but I think our kids can handle this. I'm going to be preaching to our children today in, in terms that I hope that they can engage with us also, so, so there's that. Uh, second kind of housekeeping note, um, my two sons, Jaden and Micah, um, guys, I'm just going to apologize to you publicly. I'm going to talk about you some up here today. You are my object lesson in my life for parenting. So because it's kind of a, a thorn to be the son of a pastor and you get used for a lot of illustrations, guess what, boys? We get to go out for ice cream this afternoon. Is that all right? So we're going for ice cream after, after today's message. Um, if, if you, not everybody, no. <laughs> You can meet us for ice cream. I don't know when and where, but we'll, we'll be having ice cream because to be a pastor's kid is, is quite the lot to be given. Uh, if you do have a Bible with you, you can take it out or turn it on uh, to Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, I've been preaching through the book of Ephesians for, for many, many weeks now. I think we're about uh, three months in. Uh, we have three sermons after today left in the book of Ephesians, so I've kind of taken large passages. Today we're going to be just looking at four verses, but uh, we're, we're actually kind of got a few things going on the next few weeks, so we're going to be in a pause in Ephesians. Um, I actually get a, a bit of a, a, a respite and break from preaching for the next three weeks, so uh, I'll pick back up in Ephesians here at the beginning of November. So today's Ephesians uh, chapter 6, uh, beginning in verses 1 through 4. And from time to time, I like to kind of open sermons up by, by painting a, a broad picture for you, uh, because I think sometimes we, we open our Bibles or we come to church in our own context, and, and we kind of forget what the original setting was like. And, and I think you, you and, and, and me alike often think that the original setting of the Bible was so different from ours that, it, that it's really irrelatable. Like it's, it's just so distant in time and in culture and in tradition that there's really no connection. And, and, and that's actually wrong thinking. You see, the Bible was written to really normal people, normal people just like you and normal people just like me. They would gather, in fact, this was a letter, Ephesians was a letter that was written by one of the apostles to a group of churches in the Ephesus region. So this is kind of refresher stuff on Ephesians. But it's written to this group of churches that was just filled with just normal Christians just like you. And they would get to church the same way, maybe different forms, they didn't drive there, but they would get there in the same condition that you and I get there. There were, there were couples that would go to church that were married, that were fighting that morning perhaps, that had a, a sharp disagreement on the walk to church, you know, cold treatment, maybe silent treatment was going on as they arrived at church. There were, there were single people that would go to church, um, people that were young and, and older and single. There were, there were perhaps divorced people that were struggling through marriage, uh, you know, a, a, a failed marriage. And there were people that wanted children and could not have children that were going to church. And there were people with lots of children or maybe just one child. 
And so all that to say is the people that this letter was written to are just like you and me. And they would go to church to hear this letter written. They didn't have Bibles on phones and they didn't have Bibles on their laps. They would go there to gather around the word and to hear it read and then oftentimes exposited and, and preached. And so this letter, and it's probably its original format, was, was written as a letter. They didn't know it was going to be the Bible. They didn't have all the details that we have. But they, they huddled around, probably in a home, to hear these words read. And it had great impact on their lives. And I'm hopeful that it will do the same for us today. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 6. I'm going to just read four verses this morning. If you don't have a Bible, the words are projected up on the screen for you. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but this, the word of our God, will stand forever. Let's ask him to bless the preaching of it. God, our Father, we come now and we admit, Lord, these words will fall cold and empty if you are not in them by your spirit. So we pray that you would work in every one of us gathered here, our children and our adults alike, singled, married, whatever the scenario is, Lord, that you would show us that this is your word for, for your people today. And we pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but Christmas is 77 days away. Now, before you make assumptions, I have a very strict rule that Christmas and all the decorations that come along with it do not happen until after Thanksgiving. So I'm not that guy. Just, just there's that. But Christmas is coming. And every fall, many of us, particularly those with, with younger children and families, we will put together, and, and my family does this oftentimes, a Christmas card. Now, the Christmas card, it takes months in advance. In fact, I'm convinced we should probably start in July. But nonetheless, it, it oftentimes happens in October or November, and it always begins with the picture, right? The family picture that must come together in order for the Christmas card to come together. Don't put it up yet. <laughs> the, 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 the perfect, pristine family picture is the hallmark of a good Christmas card. Is it not? Prompt picture. This was our Christmas card last year, yeah. It's, isn't it this great, right? I love my family, love my boys, love my wife. So this was the work of our Christmas card last year. In fact, one of our very own, Naomi Castales, took the picture for us. And behind that picture is what nobody sees, right? The veneer or the externality of our perfection is what everybody gets to see that shows up in their mailbox and perhaps ends up on a refrigerator somewhere across the country. That was our Christmas picture. Prompt picture number two. This is really what our picture session was like. That's Jaden, our oldest, doing some sort of crouch, dance, move, something. Micah promoting and, and, and probably stirring him up a little bit because when they get together, they're trouble. My wife thinking, how long is this going to take? And me saying, God, help me. Like, God, just help my kids come together. 
That's really the reality behind the myth of a perfect family. You see, that's the way many of us operate, if you, particularly if you have a family or if you're a part of a family or you're associated with families, is we think that there is a perfect family out there and we do everything we can to be that family. And most of our efforts as a family are spent on making the outside look perfect. Here's our problem. There is no perfect family. Okay? Can we just clear the air with that? None of us are perfect. None of us are really like our Christmas tells us, our Christmas card tells us. You see, our problem is that we focus on the external perfection to the great neglect of the internal imperfections within us. You see, Christianity is the one and only true religion that actually says deal with the inside and that will change the outside. See, Christianity tells us that our primary problem is is not what we do or who we are or how we act or, or, or how we behave. It actually tells us it's who we are in our hearts. And so when the gospel, the good news about Jesus, begins to get inside of there, well, then the outside starts changing. God wants to deal with our glaring internal imperfections in our families. He does. But when the good news gets inside of us, that's when our families can change. Here's my big statement or my my main point I want you to understand today, and it's this. That your quest to be a perfect family will crush you until the one who was crushed for your imperfect family captivates you. Okay, so it's kind of two parts. You need to understand that that your desire to be perfect, whether it's in your family or in your own personal life or work, we'll kind of tease some of those out. That's going to crush you until you see what Jesus has done for you. Uh, I I largely want to hang this sermon on on two quick points. Um, The first point is going to be directed at our children. So kids, ears up. We're going to, I'm going to talk to you. So this is, point one is directed at children, but parents, stay here. This is important. Parents overhearing. The second point, I'm going to talk primarily to to parents and adults. And children, stay here. That's important for you to listen because you can hold them accountable for what I tell them to do also. So here's the two points. I want us to look at first for our children, obedience from the heart. And then secondly, mainly for our adults, I want us to look at guidance from the head. So dealing with the heart and then the head, which is, which is the parents. Let's look at the first three verses. Children, the number one goal in your life is not to be the coolest kid in school. The number one goal in your life is not to win the MVP sports award as much as I like those. The number one goal in your life is not to be the best dressed in your school. Here is the number one goal in your life to honor and love God, to honor and love God. And this Bible passage actually tells us the best way for you as kids right now in your homes to do that, and it's to obey your parents. That's how you best honor and love God, is to obey your parents. Now, if you're like me, if you're a kind of a sneaky child like I was, you're thinking, okay, Pastor Adam, what does it mean to obey What does, maybe you're thinking, what does that Greek word mean in the Bible? I don't think that's what you're thinking, but let me tell you what it means. The word obey means to respond to a call. 
Okay? In fact, the, the, kind of the, the language behind that word is that someone, when they knock on a door, that's the, the response that that gets. That's what obedience is. Now, I don't know what it's like in your home, but in my home, when our doorbell rings, all mayhem breaks loose. Now, our doorbell probably rings uh, probably, I don't know, five to seven times a week, and most of those are the UPS guy bringing us Amazon goods that have been distributed to us. But when the doorbell rings in my house, even if it's the UPS guy, which my boys are always crushed that it is because the package is rarely for them, when that doorbell rings, there is this great hope on Jaden and Micah's part that it's our neighbor friend coming to ask them to play. And so every single time that they are trained little guys, every time that doorbell rings, there is an immediate hopping up and a joyful response to the doorbell. That's actually what's behind this word in the Bible, that God wants us to immediately and joyfully respond to our parents. I have two sayings that I've been rotely just telling our boys for, for these first few years that I, we're, we're responding to the, to the obedience. I have two things that I say. I say slow obedience is, Jaden? All right, you're on the spot. Slow obedience is no obedience. And then I, the second thing I say is I want joyful hearts. So I don't want them just drudging through what I'm asking them to do. That's actually what the Bible wants us to do, is to quickly, immediately, and joyfully respond to what our parents have for us. So what is the Bible saying? Why should you do this? Why is this a good idea? There's two reasons why it's good. The first reason is very simple. It says it right there in verse 1. This is the right thing to do. I love the Bible's clarity and simplicity in this. He just says, look at it in verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. That's it. That's the only reason. It's right, so do it. The second, the second part of that is that it's not just right, but it's also the best thing for you. Obeying your parents is the best thing that you can do in your life. Now and, and really forevermore, and we'll talk about that. You see, what, 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 the, what the Bible does is it quotes the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the first kind of portion. Actually, it's the first two-thirds of the Bible. And in that, uh, Paul here quotes the fifth commandment. So if you don't know much about the, the Bible, you probably know that there were ten commandments in it somewhere. Those ten commandments are hidden in Exodus chapter 20. They're also in the book of Deuteronomy, but, but Paul quotes Exodus here, and he quotes that fifth commandment to honor your father and mother, and then he makes the statement that this is the only commandment with a promise attached to it. You see, the New Testament, what Paul's writing in, he also quotes this fifth commandment five times elsewhere in the New Testament, but nowhere else does it make a big deal out of the promise. It says that this is the only commandment with the promise. Kids, listen back up. I know I lost you for a second there. Here's why that's important to you. The promise is actually part of the reward for obeying. So there is a reward. There's a little bit of a twist on how you get that reward. But know this, that there is good reward for you to obey your parents. So, so what is that reward? Well, the passage says that, you, that it may go well with you and that you might live long. 
In other words, that your life would go well and that you would go to a long age. Now, hear me on this, parents and children. This is not a absolute anchor promise that you will be old and wealthy. It's just not, okay? So it's, it's speaking of the general welfare of your children's life. When they obey, things go as they ought to. They, they are living the life that, that God would have for them, and things go well for them. So what, is, what are some of the practical rewards? Let me give you three quick ones, kids. The first one is that you will avoid getting hurt. Listen, when your parents tell you to get down from that tree, you're up too high, there is a good reason they're telling you that. It's not because we don't like seeing you with great feats and accomplishments in your life. We love that. But we are protecting you. And so when your parents tell you something, it is a means for God to protect you from harm, that you wouldn't get hurt. And so believe that, that that's the, the first reward, that you'll avoid getting hurt. The second reward is that you'll find wisdom. Now, kids, I know, you, you may not even realize this, but your parents, they used VHS tapes, not Netflix, okay? We used Walkmans, not iPads or iPods. You know, we, we, our, our means of technology are very questionable at best. We, we used payphones when we needed to make a call when in public. Now, you will have never grown up in a day where you probably didn't have a, pocket, uh, a phone in your pocket already. But beyond all of that, here's what you need to know, kids. Your parents actually know stuff. They, they really do. I know it's hard. I, I've been there. But listen, kids, your parents know stuff. And you should seek that stuff out of them. That that's why God gave you parents, was to be wise and to learn from their mistakes. And I know you'll have to make your own, but just know that you'll find wisdom when you obey your parents. The third thing that you'll find is your reward is that you'll share compassion. Now, this is a word kind of almost to some of our older children and, and even children, uh, adults that have parents now, is that adults are supposed to still honor their parents for, for the entirety of their lives. And so the, the form that that comes in oftentimes can be physical caring for our parents. It does. But it's also spiritual caring for our parents and, and emotional caring for our parents. And, and through that, part of the reward of obeying parents, even in low, old, long age, is that we will find and share compassion with them. And so that's, that's, a, that's another reward for obeying our parents. Let me apply this and kind of wrap this up for the kids. Here's, here's what I want you to know is our goal. Well-behaved kids is not our goal. Obedience from hearts that love God is our goal. There's a big difference there. Um, kids, eyes up. Here we go. You don't have to obey us to earn our love. You already have our love. There is nothing good or bad that you will ever do that can make us love you any less. Do you know that? And when that kind of love starts to get into your heart and you realize how much your parents really love you, you will want to respond in obedience. But the, the most enormous thing about that truth is not the love that your parents have for you, but the love that God has for you. Because you know what? It's just like that. That there is nothing you can do, good or bad, that can or will make God love you any less. You see, God's love is free, and it's undeserved, and it's been earned by somebody else, Jesus. 
And so one of the things that you children need to understand is that your relationship with God is so important and it operates completely different than the way your heart was wired for. Because you think, because I was a kid once and I'm an adult who still does this, you think you have to perform to get God's love and you don't. You see, when you see that God's love for you is so big and so powerful that it cannot be removed, it cannot be taken away because what Jesus has done for you, you begin to become so rooted in love like that that you can obey then out of joy, out of gladness, and out of love. That's what God would have for us and for our children. So what's the best model for you kids to see this? Well, the best model is in your parents. So the best model is for parents who love the Lord and who love each other. So let's transition into that second point, looking at not just obedience from hearts, but now let's look at guidance from the head. Um, when uh, our oldest son came home, our, our boys were adopted, in case the picture didn't give it away. Um, our boys were adopted, and uh, when our oldest was at home, he was very young. We, he came home when he was six weeks old, four weeks old. I get him two weeks old. I'll be scolded for that later. Um, <laughs> They were two weeks old, and at the time, I was finishing up my master's degree, and my wife was, was working full-time, and so I had primary care duty during the day. And, um, you know, first-time dad, was pretty, pretty gung-ho about the whole thing. Uh, I had, had my son on a bit of a training regimen, that's the way I like to look at it. We had one of those floor mats, you know, with the, uh, the bars over it, all the dangling stuff that, that kind of blows their mind. Well, one day I had been working my son out, a personal trainer of some level, and we were working out and he, has, he had been working, I'm training him again, this is not natural, this is me training him. He had been working on the rolling over thing, right? Stomach to back, back to stomach. Well, we were, we were working on kind of the burpee push-up move and, um, and he rolled over. He did his first rollover and I happened to get it on tape because Heather told me if you miss anything on tape while I'm at work, it's the end of you. So I got it on tape. And, you know, she thinks it happened naturally. I think it was due to my, you know, rigid training that I had him in. But, but nonetheless, you, you can't change my mind on that. Nonetheless, I was convinced that I had trained my son up to do that. Um, you know, parenting is, is this, this is painfully unique thing where we have the privilege of raising up kids. Like, we get to see them mature and nurture and grow and do things. And on many levels, we take credit for those things that probably we ought not to like I did. But here's, here's the connection I want to make is, is you have a very critical ro role in, in raising up your children. You do. This passage is, is putting that on you. And, and so you need to, to know, and as we work through this, that, that it's not my job to raise your children. It's not even the church's job. It's not a specialty program or daycare or the best Montessori school. It's, it's primarily the parent's job to raise up children. That's what the Bible teaches. And so the passage actually directly addresses fathers. Um, there's really no way of getting around that word. The word used there is fathers. Now, that's not to suggest that mothers have no role. They certainly do. And, and much of what I'll say about this has to do with mothers. That, that's not to say that single parents can't raise godly children. They absolutely can by God's grace. But the regular pattern in Scripture is for a mother and a father to raise children. It's, it's just what's assumed. It's not always the case, and God works in extraordinary ways otherwise. But nonetheless, the fathers are addressed here. Um, and one of the things, as I was kind of 
just spending time in this passage and really reflecting on my own experience as a parent is that both parents, mother or father, this speaks to both, both parents tend to parent out of their greatest insecurities. Now, I'm, brush, you know, I'm brushing with a broad stroke here, but, but fathers tend to, to operate and to parent and discipline out of this great insecurity of pride and arrogance. And here's what this looks like. I want my kids to behave because I don't want them to embarrass me. Right? I want everyone to see that I've got my ducks in a row. Right? Because ultimately... It looks good on them, but you know what? It makes me look better. And so that is operating out of this deep sense of insecurity. Mothers, on the other hand, have a tendency, again, brushing with a broad stroke here. Don't pull me down after the service and say this isn't you. But mothers have this, this, this identity struggle that is automatically, uniquely tied to their children. And so any form of, of discipline that in some way could lead to their children rejecting them is, is, is to be avoided at all costs. And so that's why in very stereotypical ways, the father tends to be the disciplinarian and the mother is you know, often labeled as this pushover who's easy to go to. And that's not the case. And, and what we're going to see, I think, what the Bible's showing us is that there's, there's a unique way that God has gifted both fathers and mothers. And it's not what our culture tells us. It's not the way we tend to operate on our own. Because the way we operate on our own as parents, when we do this according to our own inclinations, is our desire is to discipline behavior, right? We want their behavior to change, and if the behavior changes, problem solved. Well, the Bible actually wants us to do something different, and the language in this passage brings that out. It's not wanting us to discipline their behavior. It's wanting us to discipline their hearts, Right? It's, that, it's that gospel inside stuff that I talk about frequently. It's, it's that God isn't just concerned about our kids lining up and listening and buckling up and doing all the things that we want them to do so swiftly and quickly. The Bible wants us to shepherd and to discipline and to care for their hearts. So look at the passage in verse 4. It says, fathers, it does two things. It says, don't do this and then do this. Don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Don't provoke your children to anger. Well, what does it mean to provoke to anger? That word there is this idea of drawing out wrath and anger and hurt. It's this idea of, of bringing something out of somebody. And so let's just get into the practicality of this. How do we do that? Well, one of the ways we do that is when we're not present with our kids. Here's my moment of confession for this week, is that I'm not present with my kids all the time. And one of the ways I see anger provoked in my kids is when my kids are talking to me and they have to say, Daddy, put your phone down. Daddy, I'm talking to you. It's provoking anger in my children when I'm on my phone. Fathers, mothers... Can we just put our phones down? I mean, can we just do it? We are, we are raising children in a completely different environment than anyone ever has. And I'm here confessing as your pastor that I, I am to fault on this. And so I would love for us to parent our children being present because I think when we're not present, we're drawing out anger out of them. 
Another thing that we do that can provoke children to anger is not providing boundaries for our kids, right? You've seen these, these free parenting kind of articles. Sounds kind of cool on the surface. I'm really not going to decipher all that's involved in free parenting. You can Google that later if you want. But um, this idea that dad's the disciplinarian and mom is this kind of this, this nice lady who's going to kind of give us what, us what we want, it's a failure on both sides. And what it really is is an inability to, to put boundaries around our children that we agree upon and then to fight for those boundaries together united as parents because I will tell you this your kids can sniff out division like nobody else your kids will divide and conquer and pilt for your land so quickly you won't even know what happened kids know when their parents don't agree on things if I mean my boys know if they want a good snack they go to mom because dad, he's, he's kind of frugal. And I'll be honest, I'm going to give him the rotting apple because it needs to be eaten. Mom is not going to do that. And so every single time when it's afternoon snack and I'm around, they are not going to ask mom because dad's going to give them that rotting apple because it needs to be eaten. And so it's just, and, and you know, uh, you know it's, just, it's this inability to set boundaries, agree on them, and then fight for them together. Going a little deeper. Um, here's another way we, we provoke our children to anger. Again, this is getting at the why we discipline behavior and not hearts. Listen, because our primary goal in parenting tends to be we want behavior change, when the behavior's not changed, guess what happens? The discipline gets deeper and it gets harsher, right? This is really where, where, where provoking of anger comes out because, because the penalty becomes excessively severe in order to work this change in your children that you want. It becomes unreasonably harsh. The levels of expectations skyrocket. You know, we abuse our authority. We threaten, we guilt, we manipulate, we shame our children. We constantly condemn them. We are their judge. And if they don't change, we will change their lives for them. And that's radically opposed to what the Bible's teaching us about our parenting. Here's what you need to be reminded of today as you think in your own life of, of perhaps ways in which you've been provoking your children. One of the things you need to be reminded of is that children are image bearers. Children are image bearers. In other words, they are not less than human until they grow up. These are precious children made in the image of the God Almighty. He has crafted them uniquely in their own ways with their own sensitivities, their own personalities, their own characteristics, and he has entrusted them to your care. That's the second thing you need to be reminded of, is that our children are not our possessions. We do not own our children. They've been entrusted to our care. That this is a temporary loan that the Lord God Almighty, the creator of the heavens and earth, have put into our hands with great responsibility. And we treat them as though they're ours. And they're not. They're his. So what does the text tell us to do? Well, it tells us to bring them up. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction in the Lord. Those words are very similar. Discipline primarily means to educate and train. So a lot of that is the substance of what we're doing. Instruction is, is the verbal correction. So, so listen, give your kids correction, verbal correction. They need it. But also give them affirmation and affection. They need that. Give them the gospel. 
Give them good news. Show them the hand of mercy that God has shown to you. Teach them the principles of grace that God is teaching you. Show them that how everything that you've been given by God is undeserved, and so everything that they've been given by God is undeserved, and you can display the love of God to children like that. Because in this original setting, do you know how parents viewed their children? They viewed them as though they were the Lord. That's actually the model that the Bible portrays. Is the way that children get to know the Lord first and foremost is through their parents. And so that's my application for this, is that well-instructed kids is not our goal. Kids who see Jesus in their parents is our goal. The best parenting we can do is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to teach our kids to do likewise. And that does not primarily come in training them up in the doctrines of our religion, though that is certainly part of it. That does not primarily come in the strict adhering to church attendance, which, though it is important, is not ultimate. The way that comes is that Jesus is known through your love for him to your parents, or to your children. Your parenting is for their good, not to prove your worth, not to assert your authority, not to prove your value. All that's been done for you in the gospel. All of it, parents that are believing today. I think we can hear a passage like this and perhaps excerpts on parenting from a poor parent himself, and we can be overwhelmed. We can be put to task. We can be crushed, condemned. I, I know there's bad parents here. I'm one of them. I failed on many levels. I know there's good parents here too. I know many of you are very good parents. I know there's regretful parents here today who have children that are out of the home and, and perhaps looking back in wisdom, you've done things that maybe you ought not have done. And I know there's broken families here. I know there's single parents here. I know there's people going through divorces here that are trying to co-parent. I know there's people that have really bad childhoods. So you don't, you don't have the parents that, that the Bible describes. You didn't have a good father. You didn't have a good mother. And so all of that can, can fall heavy on hearts. And so I want to conclude by, by giving you the best news that the, that the world's ever known. The best news that the world's ever known, that there was a perfect kid. There was one perfect child who's existed, and his name is Jesus. See, Jesus is the Son of God who has always and eternally existed. And he came and he became like us. He took on skin. He was actually born as an infant. He was raised in a normal family. He had parents of Jewish descent. He had siblings, right? He worked in the family business as he grew up. And here's the difference between Jesus and every single one of us. He was sinless. He was the perfect son. He never raised his fist in, in honorary towards his parents. He never stormed down the hall and slammed the door in disgust at some restriction that his parents had put on him. He never punched his stomach, his brother in the stomach, show him who's the boss. He was perfect and sinless. It's hard for our minds really to, to get that because we're sinners who need a savior. But that's exactly what Jesus came to do, to be who you couldn't be. He came to be a perfect son. He came to be a perfect child, to, to show what it looks to fully submit to authority. And he left heaven, he left the glory of the Godhead from a perfect father. He didn't have a bad father. 
He didn't have a father who was quick to anger, who sent him here just to spite him. He didn't have a father who, who would abandon him. He didn't have a father who would leave him without uh, permission or without the willingness of the son, but that's exactly what happened, was that the perfect son left the perfect father. Why? To get imperfect people. He came here for us. And so the glorious good news of the gospel is that the perfect son didn't just live the life that you should have lived, but he died the death that you deserve. That his death was unjust to the innocent one, but it was just to the guilty ones. And so Jesus, the way the Bible describes this, is that he who was without sin, he actually became sin for us. And so what we see on, on the cross of Calvary, in the death of Christ on the Roman cross, at the hands of Roman executioners, what we see is the sinless one taking sin on himself. And so Jesus was treated like an unruly child. He was treated like someone who couldn't control their tongue. He was treated like someone whose heart was filled with anger, disgust, bitterness, envy, jealousy, pride, arrogance, haughtiness. That's who Jesus was treated like. And so on the cross, what we see is a perfect father who cannot, he cannot stand the presence of sin coming and punishing sin like it deserved. Jesus willingly took our punishment from a just, holy, and righteous God. There was nothing quick or undeserved about it. God was completely just to punish our sins. But the best part of the news is that he not only took our death, he not only stood silent, laid silent in the ground, atoning for our death, but he rose in victory over it. And in his resurrection, his bodily resurrection from death to life, Jesus makes the declaration that all things are made new. That your death has been paid for, your sin has been dealt with, and God has accepted you because of him. That's the best news for our parenting. If you want a perfect family, that's actually what Christianity offers you. This family, the local church, is not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. So perhaps if you're here today as a first-time visitor and you're looking for that perfect church, this is not it. Um, I don't know where it is, but I can tell you this, that the church is filled with people who have been perfected by the work of Christ for them. And that can change everything about us. And so that's the good news that you need today. And your response to this needs to be a couple of things. The first thing you need to do is you need to end the quest for perfection. End it. You will never be the perfect parent. You'll never be the perfect child, but there's a perfect Savior who makes you perfect. So end the quest. And when you end that quest, that's when the freedom to actually live the way that God intends you to live in your marriages, in your parenting, in your workplace, we'll talk about next time, that's actually when things begin to get traction. The second thing you need to do is to trust the one who was perfect for you. It's the essence of the gospel. That someone came to do what you couldn't do, lived like you couldn't live, died like you deserved, and rose again over death. So what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, it's an invitation for imperfect people to belong to a perfected family because of Jesus. The family where love reigns supreme and grace is the law. That's what it means to be a part of the church. 
That's what it means to parent by the gospel. May God, by his grace, help us and enable us to do that. Let's pray. Father, for those of us in the throes of parenting right now, we're, we're in the trenches, and um, it's hard to see the, the big battle while you're in the, the, little, the little battles. And so, Lord, I, I pray that you would help us to parent well, that we would parent out of our imperfections, that we would show our children what it means to love and trust Jesus, that, that we might even ask for forgiveness from our children, that we might be open and candid about our great need for you. And uh, Lord, we pray that you would work grace into our homes, that you would help us to teach our children about the good news, that, that it wouldn't just be the substance of it, though that is important, but it would be the way that it's, that it's lived out and the way we operate with each other, and the way that we conduct our daily lives. Well, we believe the gospel is good news, not just for eternity, but it, it's good news for now. So Lord, I pray that you would comfort the hurting, that you would strengthen the tired, that you would give us wings like those of an eagle, and that we would, that we would just soar with you in our parenting. I pray for those that, that have children that are out of the home or perhaps are unable to have children, Lord. I pray that you would help them to see your local church as the family that they belong to and that that we're all one family who, who, who have a perfect Savior. So Lord, work that in our church for your own glory and for our good. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.